Amen. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Ten Commandments as they are found in Exodus chapter 20. If you have a Bible and you would like to do so, we're in a series on the Ten Commandments and uh, at the aggressive pace of one a week. I'm not trying to get into all the ins and outs and how these apply in various stations and situations in life, as there are many excellent resources on casuistry, as it used to be called among the Puritans, being able to figure out uh, with the law of God uh, how we are therefore to live. This is a series that is especially uh, directed to be able to challenge each week one of the large lies of our culture, which we, without recognizing, are too prone to believe and imbibe. At the beginning, we saw from the preface that the lawgiver is connected to the law that he gives, and that when we seek to separate these and seek to have perhaps even a society which is upright and moral without a lawgiver, we see that uh, this is a foolish uh, endeavor, that uh, the ungodliness of men is connected with the unrighteousness of men, and therefore... Uh, we need to understand that uh, the Lord himself needs to be revered if the law that he gives is to be revered. Secondly, we saw from that first commandment how uh, Christianity makes a very exclusive claim. The Lord would have all of our heart, all of our affection, and all of our love We are to have no other gods before him, and we consider the question then, is Christianity intolerant? Are Christians intolerant? And in this day of multiculturalism and uh, religious pluralism, how are we to understand our calling? We realize that perhaps by some modern definition that uh, we are intolerant, but that's only because tolerance itself has been redefined in the previous generation. We saw the second commandment about graven images and the warning in Scripture that we become just as worthless as the idols we worship if we turn from God to these. And we asked the larger question also in our um, consumer culture, is the customer always right when it comes to worship? We considered the, the Lord's name and about how he and his name are to be held in reverence And I sought to make the point to you that if nothing is sacred, then nothing is safe. We considered the Sabbath day, and it's our uh, days of labor to be ended by a day of rest, and how that also challenges the 24-7 spirit of America, honoring our father and mother, and what that requires, as well as what happens when we seek to depart from the most basic family order that the Lord himself has established. And finally, we come today to number six, you shall not murder, as I have it in my New King James. But as usual, I'd like to read the entire law to you and hope that these things continue to settle in your mind and your ears as we read the whole thing week after week. So from Exodus chapter 20, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. Let's pray once more together briefly. Our Father in heaven, we come once again to hear the voice of the one who so long ago spoke from out of the fire, from the cloud to a people, a people whom you had set free and instructed them that they may stay free. We likewise pray that we, a people who have truly been set free by the Son, that we might be free indeed and that you would continue to seek your servants who go astray as lost sheep for We do not forget your commandments, as it's written. Amen. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy to be the head of a civilized nation. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress. In the most humble terms, our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. The year, of course, was 1776. The Continental Congress passed our Declaration of Independence from the reign of King George III. I only read you a few of the long list of complaints and miseries that the people had long endured under his governance. In every stage of these oppressions, they wrote, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. And so they say, We appeal. We appeal to a higher authority and to a higher law. We hold these truths to be self-evident, they said, that all men are created equal 
and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they ended, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are of right and ought to be free and independent states. The liberties of a nation and the lives of its citizens were safe when the people knew that there was a higher law and a higher judge. But when this is forgotten, and when this consensus breaks down into society, as we are witnessing in our world today, what will be left? What will remain? Jacques Derrida, one of the most influential philosophers of our postmodern age, not at all a Christian, said, today the cornerstone of our international law is the sacred. What is sacred in humanity? You should not kill. You should not be responsible for a crime against the sacredness, the sacredness of man as your neighbor, made by God. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept, and I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage, the Abrahamic heritage, the biblical heritage. Well, he speaks well, and that is indeed our birthright and the foundation of our law. But what are we doing with that birthright? And will we sell it for a bowl of stew? Because just last summer, a major poll of Americans was released, finding that, quote, six out of ten Americans reject the idea that human life is sacred. Only 39% of our fellow citizens believe that your life has intrinsic worth. And that number is dropping fast. But take comfort in this. This is hardly the first time in history that we believed lies about human dignity, human value, and human rights. We, therefore, will go back again to these words uttered from the fire, words first given to a people who had suffered generations of tyranny, slavery, and even endured the murder of their infant sons. Life was very cheap in Egypt, and they believed the lies of the Pharaoh. God was teaching them some revolutionary truths and reconstituting a society with a nobler end. At the beginning of Genesis, they must have been amazed to read that God had made man in his own image. What? You mean it's not the Pharaohs who were in the image of God, as we were all taught? That all people, regardless of calling and station and ability or disability? Yes, indeed. When God had asked Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, Moses says he couldn't do it. He was slow of speech, slow of tongue. But God replied to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? That is to say, every single person, regardless of ability or disability, is God's creation bearing his divine image including the handicapped, the blind, the deaf, the children of Down syndrome, you name it, and that God gave them this law, therefore, in the Big Ten. Thou shalt not kill, or as I have in the New Translation, you shall not murder. 
I'd like first to consider with you what this means, and then, once again, take up how this challenges the lies of the day. The new translation I have, New King James, on the Sixth Commandment, makes it clear that there is a certain kind of killing that is being forbidden. The word I have translated here as murder, used 13 times in the Hebrew Bible, is describing what one person does to another when he takes his life in violation of justice. Uh, The newer translations render it typically murder or manslaughter. It is never used, though, in um, circumstances such as God putting someone to death or for killing an enemy during wartime or used to describe the case of self-defense. It's not used for capital punishment. Just like our word murder comes with a uh, certain conviction about the heinousness of the act. This commandment deals with a specific kind of killing to kill another sinfully or unlawfully or unjustly, to take away the life of another with iniquity. Murderers were to be put to death in the law of God, but different words were used just as I did in that sentence. Murderers were put to death. You see the distinction that the Bible makes even at the word level. So it's clear that God's intention is not the outlawing of every kind of killing whatsoever. And so I simply mentioned in passing that what's often claimed today that this commandment forbids the death penalty. Uh, Well, God indeed had commanded the death penalty himself for heinous crimes. But you notice that with that death penalty, God also gave a very high standard of evidence, did he not? That someone must not be put to death, he said, without the testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, That is to say, you better have abundant proof before you put someone to death. And that is an area where our law does stand in need of correction today. But basically, to summarize the commandment as given, I have put the couple answers from our shorter catechism in your back of your bulletin, a nice summary. What is required in in the sixth commandment? It requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. What's forbidden? The Sixth Commandment forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tends thereunto. They draw that from a number of places, but even the very next chapter in Exodus applies this Sixth Commandment to a variety of practical situations and applications. That uh, commandment then is applied forbids all what we would call criminal activity of death, as well as wanton negligence, for example. Uh, uh, Exodus 21, 28, not destroying a bull that was known to be aggressive and that gores people. Uh, It forbids causing someone's death by failing to put a railing around the roof of your house, because people in those days typically had flat patios on the tops of their homes where they would entertain. People would come, children would play, and the law of God therefore required the owner to build a safe railing around the roof. The law would punish a man who caused a woman to lose a baby in her womb. The Bible speaks elsewhere about children being knit together by God's hands, And David in Psalm 139 says, You formed my inward parts. You covered me as in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. More on that later. But the Bible also requires us to have general care and protection of life. As again, it says elsewhere, to deliver those who are 
drawn toward death and to hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. So the Bible gives us in these Ten Commandments here just uh, two words in the original, a very sharp and a very focused command about what we might call the sanctity of life. In an age in which life was very cheap, we have a sharp statement here of God's will for human life as revealed by the law and applied for the people of Israel. He was creating a new order, a living demonstration in which life was precious, in which people had dignity, in which there was, as our framers put it, a right to life. Our Lord Jesus always applied this, though, right to the heart. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And if therefore you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. He deals with uh, the heart of love versus the heart of anger. Be reconciled, he says. This is true religion. Do not pursue anger Do not pursue revenge, pursue forgiveness, pursue reconciliation. This is the true application of the sixth commandment. For God looks upon the heart, and this is the fulfillment of the law. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have received from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Well, so a very brief overview of a very important law as it is traced out, and there are a number of other details which the Bible itself gives to apply this first in Israel, to apply this in our Christian lives later, and how we might apply this in society, in the society in which we live But I would like to point you also to the greatest argument for the sacredness, for the dignity, for the value of human life that can be given. That God has forever dignified our humanity through the Incarnation. That they are veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And we will never treat humanity with the respect it deserves. We will never understand even the world or our lives and what we should make of them until we know the one who has not only made us, but done such great things for us. And no greater honor could be paid to our human race. No greater demonstration of the value of human life, no more unyielding argument for the dignity of human beings could be imagined than that God the Son, through whom heaven and earth were made, would take upon himself a human nature, God is man, man to deliver. And if we would begin to keep this commandment as we ought, we must start here with the one who has loved us and given himself for us. The Sixth Commandment. Now, in light of this week's news, especially, I do want to say a a few words about the role, particularly of law and of grace, 
as we consider this first and fundamental right the Founding Fathers mentioned, the right to life, and how this applies to us. They to consider, as I say, the role of law and the, lo- and the role of grace and how we might best live to God's glory in the world today. First, there is the role of law. While it's true to some extent that morality can't be legislated, behavior can be regulated. Or as it's been said, the law can't change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. And that's very, very important. Last month, as I believe most of you will know, the Texas legislature passed the heart, excuse me, the Texas Heartbeat Act, a law that bans abortion when a heartbeat can be detected. This prima facie evidence that it is life. Similar laws, of course, have been passed in Arkansas, Iowa, Kentucky, and North Dakota, and were all blocked by the court before going into effect. But this Texas law is different. The act prohibits enforcement by government officials. Did you know this? It, it rather allows private citizens to file suit in civil rather than criminal trial for litigation, I should say. The way that the law works is that anyone, even someone who doesn't live in Texas, can bring a civil suit against any person who performs or induces an abortion in violation of this law, any person who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion, any person who pays for or provides reimbursement for the costs of an abortion through insurance or otherwise. And the defendant, if found guilty, must also pay all court costs, attorney's fees, pay statutory damages in the amount of not less than $10,000 for each abortion that the defendant performed or induced, and award injunctive relief sufficient to prevent the defendant from violating this law or engaging in acts that aid or embed violations of the law. Well, to the surprise of many, perhaps, this act is now in effect. Although the federal Supreme Court refused to step in on technical grounds to prevent its being moved into law, the high court, no doubt, will soon take it up. In the meantime, abortion clinics and providers throughout Texas will almost certainly be deluged with lawsuits, forcing them to reconsider their business model. You see, the, uh, again, the defendant, in this case the abortion provider or their allies, pays all court costs and attorney's fees. They've already said that this will stop at least 85% of the abortions in the state and will likely cause many clinics to close. It will also prevent others like abortion hotline staffers from either aiding or abetting. So this is a very big deal in our nation and certainly in our nation's second largest state. And we can be glad that in the meantime, certainly thousands of lives will be saved A civil law gets a great deal of attention when people talk about protecting children in the womb, and so it should. But for us today, certainly in our state, I'd like for us to remember that it is not law but grace that will in the meantime be far more consequential in how we protect children's lives and lovingly help the mothers that bear them. Um, 
I'd like to speak to you then not only about the role of law, which gets a lot of attention, but the role of grace as we seek to apply this law of God in our society. And I don't just mean the grace of supporting things like the Valley Women's Clinic or other organizations that show compassion out there. I mean the role of grace here, in here, the grace that tells single men and women that if they are having an unplanned pregnancy that they will find much more care, mercy, and compassion here than they will at any abortion clinic. The grace that tells women and men that if they have need that we will be glad to provide for them out of our abundance. The grace that welcomes those who have sinned with a loving embrace and points them to the one who came into the world to save sinners like us. The grace that embraces those who have participated in abortion in the past and never doubts that the same blood that cleanses us likewise cleanses them. We must advance the law when possible, but we must advance grace always, and we must not allow this to fall by the wayside. I remind you of a recent survey, by the way, that underscores just how much need and hurting there is even if all abortions were to stop today. For one out of four American women, by the time they're 40 years old, has had at least one abortion. A huge qualitative study published in the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons was called Women Who Suffered Emotionally from Abortion, a Qualitative Synthesis of Their Experiences. They surveyed nearly 1,000 post-abortive women qualitatively, that is to say, interviewed them. And this is what they found. Over 49% reported believing the fetus was a human being at the time of the abortion. 66% said they knew in their hearts that they were making a mistake when they underwent the abortion. 67.5% revealed that the abortion decision was one of the hardest decisions of their lives. They reported that 13% of women had visited a psychiatrist or psychologist or counselor before their abortion, uh, before their pregnancy that resulted in an abortion, but 67.5%, more than two-thirds, visited such professionals after their first abortion. Only 6.6% of respondents reported using prescription drugs for psychological health prior to their first pregnancy that ended in abortion, compared with 51% who reported prescription drug use after their first abortion. And these and other data suggested that women as a group were generally psychologically healthy before their first abortion, they said, but so many of them devastated afterward. Well, why then, if so many of them are convinced that it is a child, that this is a mistake, that it's one of the hardest decisions they're ever making, why then, despite all these things, would they have it anyway, you might ask? Approximately 58% of women reported that they had an abortion to make others happy. They simply did not have sufficient support and encouragement from others to make the choice that they wanted to make. And back to my point, what I'm saying is that they needed us. They needed and they need the love and the grace and the support 
of the church. To know the one who is able who is able to give them new life and new hope, to know that the same blood that cleanses, cleanses us cleanses them. And so let me say that if you, dear brother or sister, like others here, are still bearing this weight upon your conscience and still praying with David, my sins and my faults of youth, do thou, O Lord, forget, I want you to know that God still loves you and we still love you too, brother or sister, and Christ has come for such as us that we might be free indeed. And I would like to talk with you privately sometime about finding greater help and healing in your life. And maybe, maybe uh, you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe it's a new life and a new, and a new birth that you need. And there is power in the blood of Jesus, for he has come to give us just this forgiveness, hope, and life that I'm speaking about. Even if everything were to stop today, the victims of abortions are still with us and among us. We have a role to play in law. We have a role to play in grace. And the ancient world was not changed first by law, but by grace. As Christians organized to show mercy, to honor life, to assist people in time of need in every way that they were able Here's historian George Grant. He writes, In Rome, Christians rescued babies that had been abandoned on the exposure walls outside the city, often illegally and at great risk to themselves. These foundlings would then be adopted and raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Wherever and whenever the gospel went out, believers emphasized the priority of good works, especially works of compassion toward the needy. For the first time in human history, Hospitals were founded, orphanages were established, rescue missions were started, almshouses were built, soup kitchens were begun, shelters were endowed, charitable societies were incorporated, and relief agencies were commissioned. The hungry were fed, the naked clothed, the homeless sheltered, the sick nursed, the aged honored, the unborn protected, and the handicapped cherished. The heroes of the faith who demonstrated the grace of Christ through such deeds of kindness during the apostolic era, were legion. This is what changed the ancient world long before the law was changed to regard and protect life. Now I've been focusing what's on the news this week, as I hope you have opportunity to discuss it with others as well. But I also want to mention, before I move on too much further, what was not in the news this week again. That yet again, in Nigeria, the persecution of Christians accelerates. Over 3,600 were killed last year, 990 Christians also abducted, most of those women, not to mention the hundreds of churches that have been attacked and burned, a thousand houses and as many shops also attacked, damaged, burnt, bombed, or looted. As one commentator noted, a slow-motion war is underway in Africa's most populous country. It's a massacre of Christians, he writes, massive in scale and horrific in brutality, and the world has hardly noticed. I bring this up to you because I think that it's easy for Christians, perhaps Americans, to focus on certain lives as having worth and value and importance and forget other lives which sometimes do not. I, I realize that if 
this was a mosque that was attacked somewhere in the world or a synagogue that was being attacked and burned and people shot, it would be all over the national news as it has been in the past. But because these are Christians being persecuted by Islamist murderers, they are getting a pass. So I think maybe somebody should come out with a t-shirt that says, all black lives matter. What do you think? Those in the womb. Those who call upon God in other countries, in other continents. How about those? Do they matter as well? And we can't do everything in America, but we can't close our eyes and pretend that genocide is not happening. That is wicked. And these are our brothers and sisters. Well, I, I have these two things on the opposite end of the spectrum here today to be able to cover in your mind everything that now lies in between. Yes, there are things that get our focus. The law on abortion is a major development in this country and oh, rightly in the news. And yet you see how much more there is the story, how much more work we have to do in the church, how much more suffering there is in the world. We can't do everything, but to close our eyes and pretend that such things are not happening is wicked. We may have a charter of human rights in the UN, but unless the people are convinced of the sacredness and the dignity of life in the image of God, no one will be safe. Not in the womb, not out of the womb. So I conclude today where I began. Thomas Jefferson, the primary author of that declaration, asks, Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that their liberties are the gift of God? End quote. When this is forgotten, when this national consensus breaks down, as we are witnessing, I ask again, what is left? What will remain? Francis Schaeffer warned that without this, there's only one possibility, which is statism, where the state reigns supreme and its laws are able to tyrannize the God-given conscience and liberty of every citizen. For when man loses sight of God, man begins to shrink. He no longer thinks as he should about himself with reference to God, and the smaller his life he becomes, the less meaning he attaches to life, the less he is able to separate the significance and worth and the dignity and the, the powers of his remarkable features. Some of you might have read that uh, last year in Canada, where uh, assisted suicide is now perfectly legal, there was a woman who was uh, in her 90s, I believe, uh, but still in very good health. She, in fact, she had been very social previous to the pandemic. But as the lockdowns were coming around now for a second time in Canada, she said, just kill me. I don't want to go through the lockdowns again. It was too painful the first time. Just end my life. And received physician-assisted suicide. Um, When we do not have the conviction in our minds that life as well as liberty and the pursuit of happiness are the gifts of God and established by rights, when we do not understand the value and dignity and worth of humanity made in God's image, uh, such a cheap and paltry view of life is inevitable. In the aftermath of World War II, when the horrors of the Nazis had fully come to light, the perpetrators of mass murder at concentration camps were brought on trial to Nuremberg, and their defense was predictable. They said, look, it's a time of war. 
We were only following the laws of our nation and the commands of the state. The International War Crimes Tribunal, of course, replied, there is a higher law, and you know perfectly well, and put them to death. I think there was someone just arrested, still, just in this past week, who had been involved in that atrocity. It doesn't matter what rights nations, even civilized, erudite nations like Germany may grant or take away. Rights do not come from nations. And what values a culture chooses to embrace, even by a great majority of people, are subject to the higher lawgiver and judge. And no man, no matter how high or low, has the right to take away what God himself has granted. And so it was in those horrible days after the war that a number of people got together and drafted a variety of resolutions. One famously passed the United Nations with the title, quote, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Really a triumph of modern times. It begins, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed doesn't say endowed by whom, but they are endowed with reason and conscience and should, al- should always act toward others in a spirit of brotherhood. Everyone is entitled, doesn't say entitled by whom, it just says entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without any distinction of kind, such as race and so forth. Well, when this remarkable document was passed, one of the primary authors, Jacques Maritain, a Christian actually, he wrote the official introduction. And there he confessed, yes, we agree about the rights, but on the condition that no one asks us why. We'll pass this act as long as you don't ask us why you passed it. And where do these laws come from? And where do these rights, why do human beings have rights? And are these things so self-evident? And the socialist countries voted against the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Islamic countries later submitted their own version considerably different. Do not think that our our rights actually are unalienable. Now, I don't want to suggest that God's people are always eager to protect human life and right and dignity. Far from it. It wasn't that way in Israel, as you read in the Bible. The prophets urged God's people to love others, especially their brethren, treat them with kindness and dignity. And those prophets were hated and murdered as the forerunners of the Messiah. So in church history, there were Christians who conducted the Inquisition, just as there were Christians like Jan Hus, who suffered under the Inquisition. There were ministers in Hitler's back pocket, promoting Aryan superiority just as they were ministers being executed by them like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So please don't take us some simplistic view of history. I'm not saying this. God's people have not always lived up to the truth. And every generation finds that the struggle depends upon them, upon you and me. This is the truth. But what will we do with it? Things are bad now, but honestly, they have been much, much worse in the past. We started a place of great advantage, where still 39% of our fellow Americans believe that life is sacred, a vast improvement over the ancient world. But this, of course, is not our only hope. 
We have a great God of redemption who continues to remind, to reconcile, and to restore the straying people made in his image. And this is what is going on in Exodus chapter 20, as a people have been delivered out of the jaws of death, out of the lies and the brutality of a tyrant, that these people are being restored, renewed, redirected to be a light to the nations. Moses himself, you remember, had been a murderer. He killed an Egyptian. And he was not only forgiven, it was to this very Moses that the law was handed and through him a new society begun. You see the heart of our God for redemption, for reconciliation, for being a God that is able to give and to bless and to restore the years the locusts have eaten. That we, by faith in our Lord Jesus, can not only be forgiven, but restored, transformed, used greatly for God's purposes in the world. It happened then. May it happen again. May we be a people who not only advance law when we can, but who advance grace at all times to the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray together. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, for you have blessed the dust of the earth with the privilege of being image bearers of yours. We often don't see that in ourselves, we confess. We confess that we have often treated your image with contempt in ourselves and others, and we pray that you would forgive us and renew your image in us. Renew us, as it is written, in knowledge and righteousness and true holiness. And we pray that we would be blessed in our efforts as we would seek to restore this dignity, this light of life to a world.